You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Today's message is from John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees a man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How could a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are his disciple, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, Were you born in utter sin, 
and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who did not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Dan Parker is ready to turn tragedy into triumph. After losing his sight following a horrific drag strip crash in 2012, the determined 50-year-old is back behind the wheel with the goal of becoming the world's fastest blind driver. Parker is currently building a 2008 C6 Corvette to accomplish the feat, which will require he beat the current blind speed record of 200.9 miles per hour achieved by Mike Newman in 2013. And the lifelong drag racer is confident that he'll succeed. I'm not a blind man trying to race. I'm a racer who went blind, Parker states. In 2013, Parker became the first ever blind man to race a motorcycle on the Bonneville Salt Flats. His uh, custom-made audible feedback uh, station um, uh, it, it helps him stay on course. The following year, he set the class record with no exceptions for blindness. The driving record is attempted to fall, that he will attempt to uh, set will happen this fall in 2012 or 2020. And Parker is currently raising funds by selling riding pins that his machines, that he machines from start to finish by himself. Is there anything this guy can't do? So Dan Parker is a man who wants to go down in history as doing something great. And in John chapter 9, what we have is we have a, ma a blind man who is um, recorded in scripture and, and kept for 2,000 years as someone who had something great happen to him. The context of John chapter 9 is set in John chapter 8, where Jesus, uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles, made the declaration that he is the light of the world. And that elicited quite a response. Uh, he, he claims to be the light of the world, the one who leads his people through the wilderness, through the desert, the one that provides and protects for people. And at the end of chapter 8, he actually, in the midst of a conflict with people who were claiming to, to believe in him, he makes the statement that he is the I am, that before Abraham was, he is I am. Jesus has just made the statement in John 8 that he is the covenant-keeping God of, of the Israelites, that he is the I am, that he is the eternal self-existent one. And the people become so offended and enraged at Jesus' claim that they seek to stone him and Jesus flees from the temple. So that's the setup here is this sense of conflict um, over Jesus and his claims that leads into John chapter 9. Also in the Gospel of John, which is a biography of Jesus, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples, John, is making the case. In fact, the Gospel of John is a cosmic court case on what will your verdict be on Jesus. And, 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 G and John is laying out the case 
that there is plenty of evidence to suggest that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. He says this in John 20, 30 and 31, that this is his intention for the entire book. He says, many other signs Jesus did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John, like a good lawyer, is making the case for his defendant. And he is calling on us to render the verdict that Jesus is who he claimed to be the son of God. And that by believing, we will cross over from eternal death to eternal life. John is convinced that Jesus is the son of God and the savior of the world. And he wants us to be convinced as well. And he talks about these signs that he has witnessed. And, uh, and he lays out seven of them throughout the gospel. The first of these signs is in John chapter two, the turning of water into wine. The second sign is the cleansing of the temple. Also in John chapter two, in John chapter four, the healing of the nobleman's son was sign number three. Sign number four is the healing of the blind man near a pool in Jerusalem. In chapter six, there's the feeding of the multitude. And then today will be sign number six, the healing of the blind man. And then the final sign to make, uh, to kind of cap off the case that John is making is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. John is structuring his gospel in such a way that he would persuade us to believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And each of these signs increases in magnificence, increases in significance, starting with transforming water into wine or uh, water into wine at a wedding to raising a man from the dead. And so today we're going to look at sign number six, the healing of a blind man in John chapter nine. The title of our message today is the blind will see the blind will see this dramatic episode in John chapter nine has three scenes. So I want to walk through three scenes today. That's how we'll walk through this passage. And then I want to give us some takeaways at the end. So as we walk through this story, let's look at scene one, the healing. Scene one, the healing. Scene two will be the controversy. Scene three will be the significance. Starting in scene one, verses one through seven, we see the healing. It begins with a theological question. In verse one, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples ask a question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So we have this theological question about the source and reason for suffering. And what they, uh, they are, they are uh, articulating what would be the common belief at that time, which is that specific sins or specific um, suffering is tied to specific sins. And so they're wondering, they're asking Jesus, this man has been born blind from birth. What sin did he commit that would cause him to receive that punishment? Or was it something that his parents did? Now, apparently this was a common understanding that that sin was directly tied to specific suffering. And, uh, And they're wondering, did he sin while he was in the womb that he would receive this judgment? Is that possible? That was something that rabbis debated was uh, people who were born with infirmities must have sinned in their in the womb or perhaps their parents did some sort of sin. Um, There was thought that if a woman committed some sort of sin while she was pregnant, that that child also was guilty of that sin and could be punished for it. And so this is the theological question that they're asking Jesus. And Jesus gives a surprising answer in chapter nine, uh, verses three through five. 
He says, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So basically Jesus says, neither. Neither this man's sin nor his parents' sin are the direct cause of his blindness. And so he erases this idea that, that, that specific suffering is tied to specific sins. Now, of course, the reason that we sin is because we live or because we suffer is because we do live in a broken world, broken by sin. But Jesus is saying you do not view suffering that way. Suffering cannot necessarily be tied to specific sins. This was actually the debate that happened in the book of Job in the Old Testament. Uh, was that Job lost everything and his friends come and comfort him for a while, but eventually they begin to accuse him. Certainly you have done something to deserve this. And the whole book of Job is laying out that that's not the case. And Job retains his faith and the friends are proved wrong. Now, unfortunately, these Jewish people and these disciples must not have read Job very well because they seem to be caught in the same belief that this must be a sinner. If he is suffering this way, there must be some sin that has caused this. And Jesus says, no, you're viewing this totally wrong. He's like, no, the reason that this man is suffering is to display the glory of God, to display the unique works of the Christ. Now, here's what's amazing is that we don't have anywhere in the Old Testament, all of the miracles in the Old Testament, we never have a man born blind being healed. The healing of blindness is uniquely tied to the Messiah and uniquely predicted as the Messiah. So you actually have resurrections in the Old Testament. You have healings in the Old Testament, but you never have a man born blind being healed. Only the Messiah will do that. The Old Testament is clear on that, 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 that he will be the unique one who can bring sight to the blind. It's to be a unique sign that this is the Messiah, the one who brings sight to the blind. No one else can do that. Isaiah 32 predicts this. Isaiah 42 predicts this. Isaiah 35, Psalm 146, that this will be a unique messianic miracle. Never happens in the Old Testament. And actually it never happens since. The, the apostles don't do that. You have scales falling off of Saul's eyes, but he wasn't born blind and it wasn't exactly the same kind of thing. So the unique Healing of a man born blind is uniquely messianic. That's clear in the Old Testament. And that's going to play a significant role in the rest of this chapter. So we have this surprising answer that Jesus says the reason this man has been suffering and been born blind is to reveal the Messiah. God is going to be glorified through the works of the Christ in this man. He, this is a setup. His suffering is a setup to glorify God. And then we have a bizarre healing in verses 6 and 7. It says, having said these things, he, meaning Jesus, spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, this is a bizarre healing. Jesus, we don't have anything recorded of Jesus actually saying anything to the man yet. So if you can just imagine being a blind beggar on the edge of the temple, hoping that people will have compassion on you and give you money and, and help meet your needs. And all of a sudden a man spits on the ground and shoves mud into your eye sockets. Um, that, that would be a strange experience. Uh, that's not exactly what this man probably, hopefully, um, had experienced a lot of. And certainly if that were to happen, wouldn't that be a bit off-putting? Um, I don't know that I would respond well to someone spitting on the ground and rubbing mud on my eyes. 
without asking first. That would be kind of rude. Um, And so Jesus puts this mud, this spit mud all over his face and then says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash off. You're all dirty. And he does. And from what I understand, the pool of Siloam is not an easy place to get to. It's kind of down this embankment. Would not be easy for a blind man to do this. Um, And so there's already the fact that he is responding. He's already giving evidence of faith. Like who, 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 you know, who would do this? Who would do this? Would, would, would spit in a man's eyes and then tell him to go wash it off. Um, And, uh, but he does. He responds to these words of Jesus. He responds to the actions of Jesus and he comes back seeing. Now it's interesting. um, There's what exactly is Jesus doing? The spitting in the mud and the placing on the eyes. And it's, it's not entirely clear what that's supposed to symbolize, but it may be a connection to Genesis chapter two, verses six and seven that when God made the world and made the first human being, Adam, he used dust from the ground and he breathed life into him. So you have, which is a very intimate thing for, for God himself to make a dirt man, a mud man, and to literally put his mouth on the nostrils of that man and breathe life into him. There may be a connection here that Jesus is creating new life. He is doing a new creation in this man. He is making eyes for him. He is taking dirt and creating eyes in this intimate, close way, just like he did with Adam. He is making, he is remaking, he is making this man whole. So you have dirt and you have intimacy. You have the reversing of the curse and you have a new creation being happening on this man's face. And then going to the pool of Siloam, Siloam means sent. And I think John is trying to point that out in that we must always go to the sent one to the sent place. Jesus himself is the sent one, the sent place where we can be restored, where we can be cleansed, where we can be made whole. It's an acknowledgement of his need. It's a trust in the words of Jesus. He responds in obedience and, and comes back cleansed and whole by going to the sent place, the sent one. Um, And so it's a bizarre healing, but it's full of symbolism and full of beautiful imagery that Jesus is trying to, to uh, trying to communicate in this uh, healing. This man is, his suffering is for the display of God's glory. So then we move to scene two, which is the controversy. What exactly does this mean? Because it means something. From the outset, we see, we wonder what the meaning of his suffering is. And now we're going to switch to what is the meaning of this healing? What does this say about Jesus? What does this say about this man? What does this say about the plan of God and what's happening? And so we have this controversy. In verses 8 through 13, the crowd wonders. So they have seen this man maybe most of their life begging at the edge of the temple. Um, and and um, clearly he's healed. And so here's what, here's what happens. The neighbors and those who had seen him before, he, before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, it is someone who is like him. And he kept saying, no, I'm the man. I am that one. I am the one who was a beggar, but now sees. So they said to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. 
they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. So the crowd wonders, what is the significance of this? What is the meaning of this? And they want a theological interpretation. Is there some sort of messianic significance to this? Um, is this man lying? Is this a, a setup? Is this a hoax? Was this, what, it, what is going on here? And so they bring him, they bring him with, with, they're wondering, they're bringing him to the Pharisees for an interpretation. Like, would you adjudicate this? You, the religious and spiritual leaders of us, would you weigh in on this? How are we supposed to think about this? What happened to this man? And so the Pharisees then began an interrogation. And there's three rounds of interrogation in verses 14 through 34. They're going to do an interrogation and render a verdict on this event. Round one, verses 14 through 17, is with the man. Round two is with his parents in verses 18 through 23. And round three, they come back to the man in verses 24 through 34 and end up rendering their verdict on the event. So round one, verses 14 through 17, with the man. Now it was the Sabbath day. Now that's important. Not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. So this is a key problem with the Pharisees. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. Um, on the Sabbath day, there was a rule that you could not knead any dough. And so the mixing of mud considered kneading and therefore Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. Likewise, it was wrong on the Sabbath to anoint anyone. You couldn't anoint anyone on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is, according to the Pharisees, breaking the Sabbath on two fronts, by kneading, mixing up on the Sabbath, and by anointing on the Sabbath. And, uh, you know, it, there were permission uh, to break the Sabbath. It was a life and death situation, but this was not a life and death situation. And so Jesus um, is, uh, the, it's problematic for the Pharisees that he did this on the Sabbath. Verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. They totally miss the miracle in front of them because they're worried about their rules. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. So in a sense, the jury here is, is, is divided. Some are going, there's no way that, the, that he could be the Messiah. There's no way that he could be from God. There's no way that he could have done this healing because he has sinned against the Sabbath. And other people going, wait a minute, a healing of a blind man, that's uniquely messianic. That's something that only someone from God could do. And they're divided. And they have to try to resolve this difficulty. Um, so they ask the man and they say, well, what, what, is your, what is your take on the man who healed you? And he says, well, he's a prophet. And so we see that this man's faith is growing. When the crowd asked him, he said, the man called Jesus. And now we see him growing in his understanding of Jesus. And now he's questioned a second time. And he's not just the man named Jesus, but he's a prophet. He's a prophet. And so the man's understanding of Jesus is beginning to grow as he reflects on what has happened in his life. So the people divided over this opinion, the Pharisees decide to go and ask his parents. They are convinced that perhaps this is a hoax. Maybe this was a setup. Maybe this is just a lookalike or the man was faking all these years. And so they're like, let's go to his parents. So verse 18, we have round two of interrogations with the parents. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind. 
and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, so you've got the right guy, and that he was born blind. Okay? But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And then we have in parentheses, John gives an explanation. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents asked, he answer, said, he is of age, ask him. So we already see that the Pharisees have decided that they are not going to believe the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. They've already predetermined what they think of Jesus, and now they're just trying to refute the evidence or create new evidence. And these parents recognize that. They're like, yes, that's our son. Yes, he was born blind, but we are not going to go on the record because we do not want to be a part of this. We do not want to be put out of the synagogue. And so in a sense, they, ab they abandon their son. They're like, he is on his own now. We are not tied to him. Maybe the man is faking. Maybe it's an elaborate ruse. Maybe Jesus set this whole thing up. So let's threaten his parents. And they leave him high and dry. They see the writing on the wall. They know what's coming. And so they totally leave him on his own. Now, I don't know as you, if you notice as you go through this that nobody really cares about the man. When they first meet him, the disciples look at the man and ponder a theological question. He's just a theological quandary, not a person. And the crowd is trying to just, you know, make sense of what happened. And the Pharisees and the parents kind of abandon him, even attack him. This man who is blind his entire life has just received his sight and he's getting nothing but opposition. No one cares about this man except Jesus. Jesus is the one who truly sees him as valuable, as worthy of his time, as worthy of making whole. Jesus uniquely cares about this man. He's not a theological problem to fix. He's a person made in the image of God to be restored and to be made to display the glory of God in the works of Jesus. So the people reach a dead end with the parents and they go back to the man, seeing if they can't get him to recant his testimony. Round three with the man, verses 24 through 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. It's a threat. It's a threat. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The man doesn't have any answers particularly about this. All he knows is that Jesus has transformed his life. And he's still trying to figure that out himself. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the man gets a little snarky here. He says, he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? This does not go over well. Verse 28, they reviled him saying, you are his disciple and we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God had spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answers. The man's got a little bit of courage. It's kind of him against the world, so to speak. 
And there's a lot on the line. He's about to be put out of his community. He's already been disowned by his parents. Um, this, this healing is costing him maybe even more than the blindness was costing him. But there's a confidence kind of rising up in him. As he's being questioned and interrogated, his faith is actually getting stronger. It's sometimes when our faith is opposed or questioned that we actually become more solid in our faith. We should not run from questions. We should not run from challenges. God uses that to strengthen our faith. And you see this man, this man is starting to gain clarity about Jesus through being opposed and being persecuted. Verse 30, the man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. You have been reading the Old Testament your entire life. I am blind. I have never read a word of the Old Testament in my entire life and I see He's clearly the Messiah and you don't. The blind man sees and the people who know the Bible better than anybody are blind. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. Read your Bible. We know that God does not listen to sinners so therefore he must not be a sinner for doing what he did on the Sabbath. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never, and here you go, verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. I am the first one in human history to be healed of blindness. And it was prophesied in the Old Testament there was only one who would be able to do that, and he's the Messiah. And it's happened, and it's happened right in front of you. If this man, verse 33, were not of God, he could do nothing. And they answered, verse 34, they said, you're right, we'll believe in Jesus. No, they don't say that. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out, excommunicated him. The claim is that he is lying and they threaten him to change his story. And it just causes him to have more courage than before. They try to refute his claims. And again and again, his answers are more biblically informed than theirs. And that key verse, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I, though I was blind, now I, have see, now I see. And for those of us who are Christians, sometimes we don't have the answers to all the questions and when we're challenged. But the reality is, is that no one can ever refute the fact that Jesus has changed you. We don't have to have all the, all the theological answers. We don't have to have all the proofs. We don't have to be able to do all that. All we have to do is testify about what Christ has done for us. And there's no argument against that. There's no way to refute that. And we see that here. They cannot refute that. They question him again in verse 26, verse 27. He gives the sarcastic reply. They claim to be disciples of Moses, but they disregard the things that Moses has said about the, about the, about the Messiah. The man points out their absurdity. And the one thing that should have been obvious to them, they refuse to see. It's a bit like the Hans Christian Andersen um, story of the emperor's new clothes, right? So these two weavers come to the emperor and they say, we want to weave you a special set of clothes. And only those who are worthy of their position will be able to see the clothes. All the people who are unworthy will not be able to see the clothes. And the emperor, as they're weaving the clothes, the, the emperor says, that's a great, great idea. I love it. Um, that'll help me be able to tell who is worthy in my kingdom and who is not. So they weave the clothes and the emperor realizes he can't see them, but he can't admit that. And all of his officials and family members, they won't admit that they can't see the clothes. 
And so the man ends up going on the parade, not wearing anything, and no one wants to admit that they don't see the clothes. But there's one little boy who is the only one who has the audacity to say, why is the emperor not wearing clothes? And that's what's happening here, is that you have all of these people refusing to see what is so obvious. And this one man just incredulously is going, this is the Messiah. It could not be more clear. And he's like that boy. Everyone is united in their delusion, united in their blindness. And this one man is alone giving testimony to go, why don't you see you who claim to know God? And they answer him, and this is awesome. They answer him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. That is awesome because in verse, the first few verses, we see that the belief at the time is that if you're blind, it's because you committed some sort of egregious sin. What they're doing is to this point, they have tried to refute and call him a fake. Now, by claiming that he's an utter sin, they're admitting that he really was blind from birth and therefore this is a true healing. They are undercutting their own case. They get so frustrated that they just accuse him of being sin. That's why you were blind. And the man, uh, it doesn't say it here, but I can imagine the man goes, yes, exactly. Therefore, it was a real healing. Therefore, he's the Messiah. The Messiahs are, the, the Pharisees are totally trapped. And they actually, in their rage, just call the man a name, cast him out. And in, in that same moment, validate exactly what happened. Lose the case in that moment. It's ironic. By claiming to be an utter sin, they affirm that he really was born blind and therefore truly was healed. And all of that points to Jesus being the son of God. It's, it's, it's amazing. Scene number three, verses 35 through 41, the significance. So what does all this mean? Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? So Jesus has disappeared from the scene from verse eight to verse 34. But when he hears that this man has been mistreated, everybody has rejected him. Finally, something good happens in this man's life and he's lost everything. And Jesus goes and seeks him out again. The man didn't come to Jesus in verse one and two. Jesus went to him. And now when he's lost everything because of Jesus, guess who's there with him again? It's Jesus. Jesus is the only one who is seeking this man who is wanting what is best for this man. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now, if you think about it, he hasn't actually seen Jesus in the face yet. Um, You know, he went away to the pool to be healed. And then when he came back, all of a sudden he was in the middle of this firestorm. And so now he's seeing Jesus with his own eyes for the first time, the eyes that Jesus himself made. And Jesus asked him, do you believe in the son of man? He answered him. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. That would have been sweet words. It's the first time he's seen anyone and he gets to see the Messiah. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus receives the worship, meaning that he thought it was appropriate. The worship that should only be for God, he himself receives. It was appropriate. And then Jesus renders a verdict on the whole situation. This, uh, this event actually happened historically, but it also serves as a bit of an allegory um, for all of us. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world 
that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So Jesus will reveal something surprising. The people that you think are in the kingdom will prove to be blind. The people that appear to see may actually be blind. And those who are blind, who seem like they're unworthy of the kingdom, oh, they'll see. Jesus' kingdom will be an upside down kingdom. The blind will see and those who claim to see will be blind. Now some Pharisees, verse 40, near him heard these things and said, are we also blind? Is that about us? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The fact that you claim not to be blind is proof that you are blind. And this is masterful. At the beginning, we had this um, question is, does specific sin, is it connected with physical blindness? And here at the end, Jesus is saying, using the same word for sin, harmartia, to, and it's translated guilt here, is going, no, sin results in spiritual blindness, not physical blindness. You want to know? Um, uh, physical blindness is not necessarily a result of a specific sin, but a rejection and an unwillingness to see and worship Jesus is the result of sin and is spiritual blindness. You want to know what line you want to draw between blindness and sin is not the physical connection, but the spiritual connection. Do they see Jesus? And I want you to notice, so we see that Jesus seeks and saves the man. He seeks and saves him early on, physically delivers him, and then seeks and saves him and delivers him spiritually in verses 35 through 38. And I want you to notice the man's progression in his understanding of Jesus. We've kind of pointed this out along the way, but in verse 11, the man says that it's a man called Jesus. And then in verse 17, he progresses a little further. The man is a prophet. And then in verse 33, he says, this is a man from God. And then in verse 38, this man is the son of man and worthy of worship. Do you see how he grew in his understanding of Jesus? And it came through difficulty. It came through opposition. It came through struggle. This man goes from physical blindness leading to physical sight and from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. And worship ends up being the only natural response to the man who is standing in front of him, to Jesus. In light of all that Jesus has done, in light of all the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus has just accomplished, this man bows down in worship and it's right. And Jesus receives the man's worship as a clear demonstration that Jesus does in fact believe himself to be God and the Savior of the world. And in verse 39, he explains his purpose. Jesus finally gives theological significance to this whole event. And he says that he came to divide humanity in half. The humble blind will see, the prideful seeing will be left blind. And when the Pharisees hear this, they take offense, and they should. And Jesus calls them out and renders his verdict. They were supposed to render an appropriate verdict about Jesus and they get it wrong because they're blind, willfully blind. They've blinded themselves. And Jesus goes, let me render a verdict on you. You're blind because of your sin. Your guilt remains. If you had been humble like this man and come before me, you would see. But the fact that you have not humbled yourself, admitted your blindness, you will remain in your blindness. You and your absurd claim in your pride is blinding you and you are still guilty and you have no hope of sight until you humble yourself, admit your blindness and be freed from your guilt. Your claim to sight has made you blind 
And that's important for us to think about, is that we're all born spiritually blind. That's why this is a uniquely messianic miracle, is it's meant to point a spiritual reality, that all of us are born blind. None of us sees and comes to God rightly because of our sin. It's not physical blindness, it's our spiritual blindness that's the problem because of sin. And the only way to be healed of that blindness is to have Jesus touch us, to go to the one who's sent to cleanse us of our sin. And we can only receive that if we humbly admit our blindness. If we stand in our pride going, no, I, th- I think I've got it together. I think I'm good to go. I think I'm just fine without Jesus. Then that's just proof you're blind. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light of the world that gives sight, but he's also the light of the world that shows us how to see everything else. And if we reject Jesus, then we lose our sight. We're blind and we remain in our guilt and our sin. So I wonder how that's striking you right now. Have you ever come to Jesus in your guilt and admitted your spiritual blindness and let him touch you? To put the mud on your eyes, to cleanse you, the sent one, He has done that through his death and resurrection. Jesus came as the son of God and he came and lived a perfect sinless life. He had no guilt or sin in him at all. And on the cross, he bore the wrath of our sin that we might be extended forgiveness and cleansing. And he rose again from the dead, proving that he not only is the Lord of eyeballs, but he's the Lord of life and death. And he alone has the authority to grant spiritual life and he freely offers it to all who will admit their blindness and humbly like this man accept Jesus for who he is. So a few takeaways from us very quickly. First of all, I think there's four takeaways I have for us today. Physical blindness is not a direct evidence of sin. Spiritual blindness is. That's what we see here. Jesus is the light of the world and he's the kind of light that gives sight and yet at the same time blinds those who refuse to humble themselves before him. Secondly, suffering is for the demonstration of God's glory, not a demonstration of God's retribution. I know that many of you have gone through significant suffering and there is inevitably this question that pops up of like, did we do something wrong? Is God punishing us? And the resounding answer is no. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is no wrath for you and God is not punishing you. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And God will use this to demonstrate his glory. I love what Johnny Erickson Tata says, who lived in a wheelchair for more than 40 years due to a diving accident when she was 17. In her booklet, Hope, the Best of Things, she says this, She says, I sure hope that I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. I know that it's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know what I mean, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we now share in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing has been a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. 
And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I never would have happened. It never would have happened had you not given me that bruising of a blessing of that wheelchair. Then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open his eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we have ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. I find it so poignantly that finally, at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my tears, I won't have to because God will. We will have vindication. We will have restoration. There will be reward. There will be glory. Everything that we endure in this life because of the resurrection of Jesus, we will get back tenfold. And I can just imagine that all of those years that this man spent blind crying out, why God? I can imagine that if we were to Zoom call him in right now, he wouldn't trade any of it for the glory that he is now experiencing. We don't have all the answers for why hard things happen in our life, but we do have the best answer. And that is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of his return to make all things new. We know that he won't waste it, that he will display his glory in us. And so that should be our cry in pain. God, don't waste it. Make it worth it. Glorify yourself. And I long for the day when you restore what has been lost. So be free, friends. God is not punishing you. And be comforted. God is nearer than you could ever imagine. And be expectant. God will display his works and you will have no complaints a thousand years from now. None at all. Another takeaway is that even scientific, eyewitness, logical, apologetic evidence will not cure spiritual blindness. This was the most clear evidence of Jesus. And these were the people who would most recognize it and they couldn't see it, refused to see it. So no matter how persuasive our arguments may be, until God opens the eyes, people will not see. So let's never put our confidence solely in our arguments or our evidences as if we could argue someone into the kingdom. This is evidence that we cannot, but we must bear witness. We must bear witness like this man and God will open the eyes as he see fit, sees fit. Fourth takeaway, people usually come to understand Jesus slowly. We see this in the man. Tim Keller in his book, Center Church, says that he makes the observation that many people go from unbelief to faith through many decisions, many, small. They kind of over time begin to recognize who Jesus is. It, it's, it's actually pretty rare that someone would go from staunch unbelief to total uh, total trust and devotion to Jesus. Usually it happens kind of over time as people experience things. Now, we thank God for those, but we also realize and we see even in this man that there was a bit of a progression, that it took a little bit of time, that there were certain events that had to happen in his life and his conversion was a little bit more of a process. We are saved in a moment, but we don't always know when that moment is and uh, we should not always expect that people will come to Christ in an instant, that sometimes it takes time of walking with people. And so let us present the gospel um, compellingly and call for a decision in the moment, but let's also be patient that usually um, it takes time. Only the humbly broken get it, and sometimes it takes us a while to get broken enough to see that. The prideful fine are left out, and sometimes it takes time 
to break down that pride so we'll come to him. As a church, we must always remember that we were once blind. And it was probably a bit of a process for us to come to see who Jesus is. So let us be humble and kind and patient like Jesus. Let us look through the issues that people have and see people. Not theological problems, but people. People who need the grace of God and need our patience. And let's thank Jesus that he still gives the blind sight. Here's a bottom line. I want to show you this passage just in whole. Notice that Jesus came that we might be whole in him, witnesses for him, and worshipers of him. Do you see that? Do you see that happening? Jesus made the man whole and made the man a witness for him that he might be a worshiper of him. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do with us. He will make us whole in every way if we will come to him. And he will make us witnesses of him. We may not have all the answers, but we will testify that though I was blind, now I see. Testify to the greatness of Jesus that we may enjoy worship with him forever. I pray that that's the case for you right now. Come to Jesus now in your brokenness and sin. Maybe even actually because of your brokenness and sin, come to him. Let him do his work to make you whole, taking your blindness and guilt. He will make you whole because of his life, death, and resurrection. Let go of your pride. Confess your brokenness and be made whole. Be made a witness and be made a worshiper of Jesus. This is what the blind man, this is what happened to the blind man. And let us follow the blind man's lead in coming to Jesus. Let us be whole in him, witnesses of him and worshipers of him. Let's pray. God, I ask that in this moment you would be convicting hearts that right now you would be taking the mud and putting them on our eyes and that you would be that water that right now is washing away the blindness. And I pray that as, I pray that you would be opening eyes and that the first thing that people see with the eyes of their heart is Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would transform us in such a way that we cannot help but tell of you even if the whole world be against us and it costs us everything, Lord, help us to be joyful witnesses like this blind man. So grateful of what you've done for us, so convinced that you have saved us that we can't help but speak of you. And Lord, I pray that we would acknowledge that you are the Lord and you are, that we would worship you with our whole lives, that we would bow down before you like this man and receive the affirmation that this man does. God, help us to not be like the Pharisees who just refuse again and again your free offer of grace. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to admit our blindness. And we pray that you would make us whole. Make us witnesses. Make us worshipers. In your name we pray. Amen.
Spend a few moments answering some questions. Hi, Krista. Hello. Thanks for reading scripture for us today. Yeah. We're green. All right. Well, you kind of did a great job explaining things. Um, my first question is that Jesus seems to do a lot of things on the Sabbath. Is there any significance of him breaking the law? Quote unquote, during the Sabbath? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Um, I'm the one that should be on. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. Um, it, it certainly seems like Jesus is confronting the system and uh, some of the artificial laws that have been added to the Sabbath. So I think he is trying to clarify and, and show um, where the law has been misapplied and the difference between what God's law is and what man's law is, and also that Jesus ultimately comes to be the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So I think there's a number of things going on there that, um, that he is trying to address. I don't know that we have one specific verse necessarily, necessarily where Jesus does that, but it does seem like he is trying to show himself to be the fulfillment and also to divide where, um, and even within the law, there was a hierarchy. There were certain things that uh, were more important than others. And I think he regularly is trying to show that this man is more important than the rules, right? Making this man whole is more important than the rules. And and by the way, those rules are uh, are man-made anyway. So the, the Good Samaritan is an example of that, is that the Levite and the priest sidestep the man because they don't want to be ceremonially unclean. And um, And kind of the point is, is that they love the law more than they love people made in God's image. And so I do think that he is trying to um, show that, that he's here to fulfill those things, show the true from the false, 
and show that Jesus was, that God was always more interested in the restoration of the image of God and the rescue of sinners than just the keeping of rules. And then you hit on this a couple of times, um, but could you just clarify why the healing of the blind is reserved specifically for Jesus? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, I mean, we'd have to, we'd have to get into the mind of God in eternity past on why he would go, I'm going to keep this uniquely here. I think because it shows us, um, it so clearly shows the human problem. I mean, trying to live your life blind and try to do normal things as if you weren't blind is to create a real mess and danger. And in the sense, in the same sense of like not being rightly related to God really causes a lot of devastation and destruction in the world. And so we are kind of like walking blind. Um, and so we do a lot of damage to each other. And um, what in, in Romans chapter one, when Paul is describing the human condition that all are under sin, he says that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and that our minds have become darkened. And so now we do what we ought not to do. We love the wrong things and we hate the, the good things and uh, the whole world. And God has kind of let us live in this darkness and experience the darkness of it. And, um, and Jesus coming is like bringing light. And now we see clearly, we don't just see Jesus and God, but now we see everything else and go, oh, I now see sin for what it is. I now see people as I ought to see them. And so um, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said um, it's not just, um, I for, I'm going to butcher this, but it's like the sun. I, I don't know that the sun exists, meaning the, the physical sun exists because I see it, but also because by it, I see everything else. And so I think that's the same as when we come to Jesus, we, we begin to see God, but then we actually begin to see our life, our sin. We begin to see what's truly valuable and beautiful and what's actually ugly. We begin to see truth from lies. We begin to, we begin to see things in his word. And so that idea of being made, going from blind to seeing, um, seems to be something that in the Bible is reserved to get our attention and that only God can do that. Um, so... In verse 38, um, or 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see be, may become blind. And then earlier in chapter 8, it, Jesus said that he came not to judge. Um, yeah. Can you, is Jesus just talking through both sides of his face or what's going on? No, I think the context of either in that uh, when he says, I'm not judging, he's speaking particularly to what he's being accused of there. And uh, it's about his identity. He's like, okay, in this moment, I think if I'm right there, um, I am not trying to make a statement about myself. I'm trying to point you to God who has rendered a judgment here. <clears throat> so he's trying to say, I'm not actually saying anything that the father hasn't already said. I don't judge that. Um, but here's the judgment. And so now I think he's speaking of a different kind of judgment here that he's going to bring a judgment on humanity. Um, and so, so I think the context of it, I think if you pull them out, they're opposite statements, but in their context, they're dealing with different issues. Um, and so that's why, why that's the case. So that's okay. my quick answer. There's probably a deeper answer. Yeah. Okay. Most of my questions. Cool. Was there any out here? Okay. Jesus healed me. How did he know 
Good question. I don't know that we have that information in there. Restate the question. Okay. So, do you want to restate the question? How did the blind man know it was Jesus if he never saw Jesus? Um, that's a good question. Let me look at it real quick and just see if there's a, a simple answer to that. I don't know. I don't know if maybe he overheard the conversation that they were having about him. We don't have any recorded words other than he tells the man directly, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Um, and so he went and washed and came back seeing. Um, so yeah, maybe there is some, some additional information in there that we're just not available to us. That's, I hate to speculate beyond that. Yeah. Because I can only go with what the text says, but yeah. So somewhere along the lines, I mean, he must've known either by overhearing the conversation or there's more that was said to the man than we have recorded. So good question. Not sure. All right, so now I'm going to turn around on you and ask you two questions. Yep. So at the end of each of our live streams, we've uh, uh, had someone up here who um, would then share a little bit of their testimony and their story with us. So tell us about how you grew up and how you came to meet Jesus. I was born in a Christian household, and so that just means my parents are both Christians. Both sides of my grandparents were Christians, and a lot of my families would claim to be Christians. We would go to church on Sundays we would pray before dinner each night. My dad would tuck us in and pray um, each night. And um, when I was six or eight, I was at a vacation Bible school, and we had these little booklets, and on the back of it, it had a prayer to accept Christ. And I remember having my friends tell the teacher, oh, I want to pray this prayer, I want to pray this prayer. And I, I remember thinking, I don't want to do what they're doing. <laughs> Um, but by the end of it, I was like, I kind of, I do believe in Jesus. I know who he is. I know he died on the cross for my sins and I want him in my life too. Um, so I told my, the teacher, um, that I wanted to accept Christ as my savior. So I read the little prayer and I remember being even a little bit embarrassed to tell my mom that I prayed the prayer cause I didn't want to do what everyone else was doing, I guess. Um, but I told her and, um, they were very glad and excited for me. And I believe that was probably when I gave my life to the Lord. Um, there was some fruit within that. Um, either that or I was just a very guilty feeling kid. Um, I would put myself in time out if I did anything <laughs> wrong. Um, I would <laughs> lock myself in the room if I thought I did something wrong. Um, but I never really truly understood my own sins. Um, and I never fully understood the gospel. I remember someone telling me the gospel, and I thought that meant just the Bible um, rather than just the, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, and I, I would get my worth a lot from the things around me. Um, I got my worth from boys or from my friends and from grades. And I remember in, um, in middle school and high school in particular, um, I was just a huge flirt. Like I would just talk to any guy that ever would even pretend to look at me. Um, and I would be devastated all the time because I wasn't good enough for them or, um, I would just put myself out there and just be hurt over and over and over and over and over. Um, and then with grades, I am a perfectionist by nature and I try to do the best that I could. And even if I were to get 100%, I wasn't satisfied with that. I never reached my own um, expectations. I always felt like 
I always felt like I wasn't good enough. I I would try to reach those high standards. And even if I did reach them, I still didn't feel good enough. Um, and then with my friends, I just remember never really feeling like I was liked. I remember going to bed, especially in high school, just crying myself to sleep because I just didn't feel like I was worth anything. Um, the guys never liked me or I would do things and then I would feel guilty um, and I was never good enough in, in the things that I thought I needed to be good enough. And then I didn't feel like I had good enough faith. I wasn't, I would have doubts about God's existence. And so then I didn't think that I was believing hard enough to be able to even to get to, into heaven. Um, so it was just like really hard because I could never meet those expectations. And then when I was a freshman in college, um, one of my Bible study leaders asked us if how sure we were to be to have salvation. I was like, oh, probably 80%. I'm a pretty good person, but I have my doubts. Like, But I, you can never be 100% sure. And they, they told us, that, like, you, you can have 100% assurance that you have that salvation. Um, and then through multiple conversations with my Bible study leaders, I was able to, for the first time, tell them of my doubts because a perfect Christian doesn't have doubts about the Lord. Um, I was able to tell them about my sins because a per- perfect person doesn't sin, right? Um, but because I was able to let go of my pride and be able to admit that I wasn't perfect, I was able to see who Christ was, um, for who he is. And my Bible study leader explained to me, like, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how big your faith is, but God's perfect sacrifice on the cross, he died for your sins. And so you don't have to be perfect. And just hearing that just lifted the weight off my shoulders um, and from there on, I've been able to grow in my faith, um, learned how to read the Bible chapter by chapter verses instead of the Russian roulette where you randomly pick a verse. <laughs> it makes more sense when you actually read the Bible yeah. um, in its <laughs> context. And um, I went on a mission trip and learned how to share my faith, which helped me grow in my own faith. And then my first year of grad school, I learned how to lean on the Lord in suffering. Um, it was, grad school was just super stressful. Um, and I feel like I was studying from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed every single day. I took like a couple hours off on Fridays to relax. Um, and then during that first semester, my boyfriend and I broke up and I was just devastated. It was just so hard. Um, I don't know if I would have gotten out of bed if I didn't have to go to school. So school kind of pushed me, even though it was stressful, but it pushed me to keep living my life. Um, I was probably depressed, very anxious all the time. Um, and I just remember on lying on my floor, just bawling to the Lord because I was just so hurt and so frustrated and... Um, didn't know what to do, but all I could do was just be real with the Lord. I couldn't call my boyfriend. He couldn't support me anymore. Um, I had a great sense of community for my friends and family, but they just they just didn't know. <laughs> they didn't know how hard it was. Um, but by that suffering and by um, leaning into the Lord during that time, I was able to really see him as a, a true father. I could physically feel him just comfort me um, in that time. And... Um, yeah, just grew in my faith much greater than I probably ever would have. Um, and the story that you told about the lady with the wheelchair, it reminded me of that time because I, I tell people now I would never wish that upon anybody because it was r- truly a hard time in my life. 
Um, but I would never take it away from myself because I grew so much in the Lord. He became so much more real to me. It wasn't just reading my Bible to read my Bible, but I read it because I needed him. Um, and I was able to see his constant love and his constant um, just strength and power, even when I was mm-hmm. feeling weak. So, And then from now, from there on, I've been growing my faith and taking steps forward towards the Lord. And Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's a... So yeah, that probably even in our text today, that idea of it being a bit of a process and um, yeah, also definitely a process. beginning to you know, making sure that your faith is not on your performance or your feelings of faith. We don't put our faith in faith. We put our faith in Jesus and his finished work and not in those things. That's good. Mm-hmm. All right. One more question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just sketch out for us now a little bit of what you do now, how you serve Christ, what you do for a living. Yeah, so I am an occupational therapist, which just means I help people do what they need to do if they can't do it um, for children. And so kids with disabilities of all and abilities of all different kinds. Um, And just the way that I'm serving the Lord is just loving on people at my work the best that I can, especially in this time. I feel like everyone's super stressed, myself included, Um, but just showing people that I care by actually listening to them and actually loving on them. Um, yeah. And just living my life to serve the Lord and do what I can. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you, Krista, for helping us out and for sharing your story. That was really a blessing. So thank you. Uh, we hope that this service has been a blessing to you, that you've been encouraged, uh, that you see Jesus more clearly and are drawn to him in faith and If you have any questions or you're making any sort of spiritual decisions, uh, let us know. Go to redeeminggrace.info and let us know how we can be praying for you or how this message impacted you. Or if you have a question, uh, we certainly want to be of service to you. And our benediction today, which is just a word of blessing to us, um, is this. Psalm 146, the, the last part of seven through the first part of nine. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Let us never forget what our God is like and let us always lean on him for everything that we need. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.